The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. You may have noticed that normally our practice is to do communion after the sermon. There's a reason we did it first this week, and it's because of our text. Our text begins by saying, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. What Peter is calling us to as a good pastor, he's, he's looking at his people and he's saying, I want you to be ready, resolve that you're going to be ready to suffer, not to be armed against the hostility of this world with, with weapons, not to be armed with resources so that you feel like I'm ready to take on whatever is going to come at me because I have enough or I am enough. No, rather, as you look at this world that is not friendly towards Christian convictions, he's saying, I want you to be ready and fix your eyes not on what you have, not on what you are, not on what you could be. Fix your eyes on Jesus the one that you have, the one that did all of this for you. Look at the way that he suffered. And because of that, take that way of thinking and be ready. Don't be surprised when it comes your way. The point of this passage is this. The main point is found there in verse 1. The phrase is arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The same way means you've got to go back to what is he talking about? What way? What same way? Christ suffered in the flesh. So here's the point. We must meditate upon Christ's suffering and then arm ourselves with that same way of thinking what we have to do. That's what we've been doing, meditating on what Christ did, meditating on His suffering, meditating upon the fact that there was nothing that this world could throw at Him that would move Him from the path of obedience to His Father to bring many sons and daughters to glory. There was nothing that could keep Him from saving us. And this same way of thinking, Peter's saying, don't let anything that this world throws at you, if Jesus died to put you on this path to glory, don't let anything take you off of it. Don't let anything move you away from this path of obedience to glory. Don't let anything talk you out of it, push you away from it, take you off of it, arm yourselves and understand it's going to be like one of those shows in which somebody has to go across a, a beam or something and there's, there's gladiators or whatever waiting to knock them off. That's what this world is. You're walking this road of obedience and the world's going to try to knock you off of it. 
Peter's saying, be ready. Don't be surprised. So let me read the text. We'll pray, and then we'll walk through it. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that this text would do its work in us and that we would be ready, we would be resolved that there is nothing that this world can throw at us that would move us away from the path of obedience, that we would not be on the path of least resistance, that we would not conform to the norms and the patterns and the way of this world just so that it will go well for us, easier for us, less resistance, no. Let us resolve, O God, that we would be on the path of obedience, the path of God's will, and that you would empower us to stay on it until we make that transition to final glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you feel a sense, even in this service, of how much is at stake in this life. This life is, compared to eternity, like a grain of sand on the beach. The beach is like eternity. This life is like a grain of sand. It's like a a vapor. It's here and then gone. But eternity is at stake in what you do with this time that you've been given. And so what Peter is trying to do in this text, three points along the outline here, he's trying to say main thing, verses one to two, resolve. Resolve to suffer, not sin. That should be your resolution. Your resolve to suffer, not sin. And then he uses a a ground a foundation to hold that up. When we say something's the main point, what we mean is that the main point is the highest logical point and everything else is supporting that, holding that up. The two things that are holding that point up, resolve not to sin but to suffer, resolve that nothing's gonna take you away from the path of obedience and the will of God, 
underneath that, he says, you need to understand the present judgment that you're going to have, verses 3 and 4, and the future judgment that's coming, verses 5 and 6. It's all anchored in the judgment that's happening. The judgment that's happening now by the world upon believers is they're maligning you. They're shaming you. They're trying to get you off the path of obedience. But you're to understand they don't have the last word. God does, and they're going to be judged for their rejection of Jesus, and you're going to be saved because of your acceptance of Jesus. Don't let them move you because you understand the future judgment is not just something tucked away in your memory to bring out later. It's supposed to break into the here and now and strengthen your resolve. I'm not going to be a fool to give up eternity so that I can be liked for a little while. You can feel the gravity of this, can't you? There's so much at stake. So let's look first at the first two verses where he says, resolve to suffer, not to sin. Let's read it again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So he starts by saying it's a mindset that comes from seeing Christ. In Christ's suffering, the book of Hebrews, which we already quoted in chapter 12, says that Jesus endured the cross. How did he endure that? By despising the shame. By looking at all the shame that was coming him to get off the path of obedience to his father, trying to shame him away from obedience, and Jesus shamed the shame. He looked right at it and he said, you will not move me from my mission of obedience to my father and saving my bride. You will not move me from that mission. And now in Hebrews just like Peter. Hebrews 13 says, let's go to Jesus and bear his reproach. Meaning you're going to be reproached if you have the name of Jesus. And Jesus promised it. He said, if they called the head of the house Beelzebul, like prince of demons, you think you're going to fare any better if he was sinless? If he was the sinless, perfect son of God? Do we expect that we're going to be treated better than Jesus? Just be ready. Look at what Jesus endured, the reproach he bore, and be ready. It's coming to you. Be ready. Resolve like Jesus did, that nothing's going to take you off this path. Because look at verse, the end of verse 1 and verse 2. In Peter's mind, arming yourselves with this way of thinking, this approach to this life that's going to involve suffering, where you embrace it, you're ready for it. He says it has something to do with your sanctification, with your holiness. 
Suffering and sanctification are a package deal. You learn obedience in the seminary or the school of suffering. What's the link between the two? You see it? Just look at it with me. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He doesn't mean you become perfect. He means you've made a definitive break from the way that you used to live, the way that you were, your pagan past, when you didn't know God, the way you thought and the way you lived. You've made a decisive break. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Your life is different. You've ceased from sin. But he says, if you've suffered in the flesh, you've ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Let's try to make this simple. Here's what he's saying. If you've made a decisive break from your past, and you're now resolved to live the Christian life, What's going to happen to you is the same thing that happened to Jesus. The world is going to use its favored strategy to keep you from the path of obedience. You've got two paths. You've got the path of least resistance. Follow along with the world's norms, with the way the world thinks, with the way the world acts. Just fit in, conform, and it will go well for you. You'll just fit in and not be a target. If you stick your head up, you're going to be a target. Just just stay with them. That's the path of least resistance. But the other path is the path of obedience. You see it? No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So you're saying, I'm on this path called the will of God. That's what I'm sold out for. That's what I'm living for. I'm no longer like the rest of the world, living for myself, my flesh, the the pleasures and passions that I can gather while I'm here. I'm no longer about that. I'm no longer serving myself, thinking only of myself. This fool's game that says if I just get enough stuff and enough pleasure, then I'll be happy. Saying you're not on that path anymore. You're on the path of obedience called the will of God. And when you make the decision to suffer, what you're saying is, I would rather obey God and face the world's wrath than obey the world and face God's wrath. I would rather be on this path, no matter what comes. I'm resolved that nothing's going to put me off of this. What Peter's saying is, that's the path of obedience. That's the path of the will of God. That's the path of holiness. And when you resolve to suffer, you already are signaling with that resolve, I'm not going to be moved from obedience. I'm living now, not for myself, but for the will of God. That decision that I'm not going to be moved from it no matter what suffering comes, no matter what the world throws at me, is an essential part, he's saying, of your holiness, of you resolving to obey Jesus. The very first verse of this letter, that you were saved, you were set apart by the Spirit, foreknown by God in order to obey Jesus. In other words, Jesus didn't die so that you could live however you wanted. Jesus died to put you on this path 
from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, now a citizen of heaven, on the road to heaven. He put you on that path. He died to put you there. And we don't say to Jesus, now I can do whatever I want. I can live like the rest of the world because I know I got my get out of hell free card. No. It's saying with salvation comes this mindset. I'm sold out to obey Jesus. Now, what is therefore the judgment that's coming? The judgment that's coming. Look at verses three and four. The present judgment, verse three. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. This is so fascinating to me that he says in verse three, why are you on the path of obedience now? Why should you stay there? Why should nothing move you from it? Because you've already tasted this path. You've already been on it. And you know the time that you spent there is more than enough. In other words, what you found there was not life. What you found there was not eternal life. What you found there, you're glad. You should be glad to be rid of. You shouldn't be wanting to go back to it. You should be saying, I've had enough of that. The time past is enough for the way the rest of the world lives. What that implies is that living that way, though it promises pleasure, actually produces scars, actually produces a bitter taste if you've tasted addiction, if you've tasted just being out of control, this is drunkenness that he's talking about, being sold out to sexual immorality. It does not satisfy. It leaves you like an empty shell of yourself. And Jesus died so that you could make such a decisive break with it that says, no more. I'm done with that forever. I think about where I grew up with my friends from high school. I have a hard time keeping in touch with any of them because they never stopped living this way. They never stopped the party lifestyle. They never moved beyond that. And I guarantee you what the result has been. It has been bearing bitter fruit. They would not say this was a great trade-off. In fact, the, the choice that's in front of you is shame either way. If you stay on this path, the path of obedience, they're going to malign you. says that's the present judgment. The verdict is in. The world's verdict on the church is in. They hate us. The verdict is in. This world is not friendly to Christian convictions, to living a different way, to standing out, to not fitting in, to being different. There is going to be a rejection and a ridiculing. And they're going to shame 
to try to get you off of that. But it's not a choice of shame or no shame. It's which kind of shame are you going to have? Because Romans chapter 6 says, what was the benefit or the fruit that you got from when you were living that way, the things you are now ashamed of? And the end result is death. Wages of sin, death. You're going to be shamed either way. If you want to go back to the way that that life was and the the promise of, of fleshly passions and pleasures, he's saying, you were there. Don't you remember how ashamed you are of that now? Don't let the world's shame put you back in a position where you feel shame from God for your sin. Guilty conscience weighed down with a sense that I deserve to be judged. That fearful expectation. Some of you, I'm not not just gonna skip over this lightly. Some of you know what this means. You remember these wasted years when you weren't living for God. And you have the scars from it. I'm inviting you in this service to take those scars, take that shame, and don't bear the false shame when you've already been forgiven of it. Don't hang on to it. Keep heaping shame on yourself. There's an appropriate shame that comes from God when you haven't confessed and you need to be forgiven, but once you've been forgiven, that shame should no longer be there. It's false guilt if you've been forgiven, if it's been paid. Walk in freedom now, in your conscience, knowing I'm not going back long enough there. Resolve not just to go back to those days, replay them in your mind, beat yourself up about them, No, no, don't just go back. Go all the way back and see them nailed to the cross. You bear them no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Go all the way back with them. See them nailed to the cross. Really, right now, those sins you're ashamed of, I invite you to see them now. Not replay them, not burden yourself with them. See them nailed and judged because they are. So that in the judgment that you feel from the world, where it says they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, when you experience ridicule and rejection, what's supposed to happen? Peter's already been telling us, you're not playing a game of dodgeball where they're ridiculing you and you let them have it back. No, you're, you're ready. You're not surprised. In this world, it's going to feel sometimes like a sucker punch. You can't always be ready for this, but you can be armed for it. You can be ready. You can be in the full armor of God, walking the path of obedience, ready to be rejected. Isn't that hard? I'm not just talking about this like it's easy. Uh, I think, for example, about singles right now. Maybe the world's ridicule 
is being heaped on you maybe more than anybody else. Because if, if you're not married, it can be so easy for the people around you to assume, why are you saving yourself? Why, why are you not out there doing what everyone else is doing? Why are you not moving in with a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Why are you not part of the hookup culture? Why are you not doing what everyone else is doing? And to stick out like a sore thumb is so hard. When everybody wants a sense of belonging to fit in, nobody wants to be viewed as an outsider, as a a reject of the world, that's hard. It's hard because the pressure is unrelenting. You don't get a break from it in the world. It's always trying to squeeze you into conformity with the pattern of this world. And it can become very hard. You feel very vulnerable when the world says, and even in its economic sense, like just be with somebody. You don't have to be committed to them, just, but then you don't have to pay rent if you're with them. Two are better than one. You don't have to be married. You can, you can try to get all that the world has to offer without doing it the way God says to do it. That pressure is oppression like a hand of the world pressing on you all the time. I just want to say we see you. As a church, we love you. The the solution for all of the world's rejection is supposed to be the church's acceptance of the family of God, that you can come in here and you can be with others who are sold out for the will of God who just want to obey him, to find a place of belonging here when you find the place of rejection there. Oh, that the church would be part of your healing and not part of your wounding. And sometimes the church has acted like marriage is the holy grail. And singles just get overlooked, forgotten about. We see you. We love you. We're so glad that you're part of the family. Please forgive us for the ways that we've overlooked you, forgotten about you, not cared for you. And when it comes to the world's ridicule, they they malign you. It's not just those who won't participate in this kind of lifestyle. It's also that the world, by extension, is not friendly to Christian convictions. Why do they malign you? They feel implicitly indicted by you. When you don't live that way, what happens is they feel judged by you. And so they hate that. They don't want any judgment, any accountability. And when they're around you, they feel it. There's a sense of judgment by saying, I'm not going to do that. Oh, you think you're better than me? You feel it always. And what's happening in that moment is, let's just talk about like some of the the top four kind of convictions that are going to get you ridiculed today. 
Think about the the first pair of convictions, namely what we call the exclusivity of Christ, meaning he's the only way to be saved. The world wants to say there's many ways to God. Christians come along and say there's only one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved, and it's the name of Jesus. He's the only way to the Father. No one comes except through him, and the world hates that. And then you pair that belief, Christ is the only one that saves, with the other belief, the doctrine of hell, that says, therefore, if you haven't received Christ and received forgiveness from him, you're going to hell, eternal punishment. You pair those two things together, and the world will hate you. So much ammunition there to hate you. Are you going to hold to that? Are you going to let them shame you away from your Savior, the one that you know is the only one who could ever save you and all that he's done for you? Are you going to let the world shame you into being embarrassed about him? Jesus said, if you deny me, I will deny you. We're already as Christians saying, you're not going to get me to be embarrassed about the one that I love most. You're not going to get me to be embarrassed about belonging to Jesus. He's everything to me. At that moment when they shame you, just out-worship them. Out-love them in loving Jesus. I'm not going to let you get me to stop loving Jesus just because it makes you so uncomfortable. What's the other pair? The other pair would be Christian convictions that say every person, man and woman, biologically made male and female in the image of God, they belong to God. God, that's a sacred truth that God makes people in his own image. They belong to him to judge them. He owns them, made them male and female. And the world hates that. The idea that God somehow decided to make you biologically male or female. The world wants to be able to decide that. They hate that. Combine that, that God made biologically male and female. Combine that with the doctrine of marriage that says, God says marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And that any sexual relationship outside of that is sin. Oh, those two pairs of beliefs, the world is going to ridicule you, try to shame you into denying them. I just think about students going back to school, being assaulted with these types of views, and you always have the choice. Am I gonna stand out again? Be different again? Have people ridicule me again? Understand this. Peter says, when you face the world's judgment, don't give them the power to believe that's the final word. That belongs to God. That's the next point, you see it? They malign you, but. They are judging you, but, verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Just like you're to be ready to suffer, you're to understand 
God's ready to judge. All that you're suffering, all that you're being ridiculed about, God is ready to make it right. And he will. So don't forget about it. Let the future judgment break into the present and say, I can bear your temporary judgment because I know the eternal judgment. I know what God says, and you're not going to get me like Satan did. Did God really say? No. I know the judgment that's coming. I know the reversal of the world's verdict is coming. Now, look at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What in the world does that mean? It does not mean that the gospel, that Jesus came and preached to people who are dead and gave them a second chance or anything like that. It says nothing like that. It doesn't say Jesus preached to people who are dead. It's going back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 that says these things that have been announced to you in the gospel that was preached to you, here it is. The gospel was preached to you. There are some people, they heard the gospel. These Christians were, were one out of the world and then they died. And what is the world's ridicule upon them? They're in their rejection of Christianity. Here's what they're saying. Why should we believe in Christianity when we see you die the same way we do? That's what it means. Judged in the flesh the way people are. Meaning everybody experiences this. The wages of sin is death. If you eat from that fruit, you will die. It means everybody is part of that curse. And physically, everyone dies, Christian or non-Christian, go into the grave. And the world's saying, really, doesn't look different to me. Looks like you die like we die. And Peter's saying, don't forget, don't forget. Yes, judge in the flesh the way people are, your bodies die, but you live spiritually because of his resurrection the way God does, meaning, as Paul says, to be away from the body, yes, you're right. The world is right. We physically die like everyone else. What they don't see and what they don't know is that when you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. He's saying don't forget that part of the gospel. Don't forget when they're maligning and ridiculing you because you've lost loved ones and it looks like they died the way everyone else did. God's verdict on them was not you're eternally condemned. No, his verdict is they're experiencing it right now. They're with him in paradise. Just don't let the world do thought control to think it's just like everything else. No, no. Believe the gospel, that when you die, you're present with the Lord. It is so different. There is nothing that could ever happen to you that's going to separate you from him, not even death. That's what Peter's saying. So here's, here's the way I want to close this. I want to call you in your readiness to suffer, in your readiness to be ridiculed for being on this path of obedience and on the will of God that path, how does Jesus change everything about that? The first thing that I want you to do is rather than feeling like it's, it's kind of performance 
anxiety like, am I suffering well enough? Am I doing it all well enough? Remember that Hebrews says that Jesus suffered in the flesh and he did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. Let me read it. This is so, so life-giving to me. What did Jesus do? In the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5, 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. That is, Jesus' holiness. He was perfect. God heard him in his prayers. Now, let's keep reading. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Remember first in your suffering that Jesus suffered sinlessly, which means you don't have performance mentality and anxiety saying, am I suffering well enough for you to love me, God? Pressure's off in the sense that you don't have to be perfect because Jesus was for you. It means there's no manual and no script for everything that you go through with all of your crushed dreams and desire to be loved and belong and to be accepted. When you are struggling with that, the last thing that you need is the additional burden of guilt that says, am I doing it well enough? It's just saying enough of that mentality First, understand Jesus did it perfectly for you, and he died even for the times you don't suffer gracefully. He died for that too. So you can bring all of that angst and anger and everything to him and understand he suffered perfectly so I don't have to. It doesn't mean that you don't want to obey. It just means rest there first, not in your performance but his. And then here's, here's what I just want to lean in on as we close. How did Jesus suffer? First Peter says he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. When you think about Jesus suffering, do you think about him primarily stoically? The image of kind of the stiff upper lip, just ready, like nothing's going to take me away from the path of obedience and just stoically impassionately, maybe easily getting through it? Hear this again. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. I'm just calling you to pray and lament the same way Jesus did. Have you ever just let it all out to God in prayer? You, you think somehow God could take it? If you just unleash in his presence all that hurts you, all that you feel like is just crushing you, if you just wail that to God, suffering means not I'm doing this perfectly, composedly, I'm doing this with a stiff upper lip stoically. It just means when you take everything that's happening to you that's crushing you and you just want to wail out loud, do it to God. That's what it's saying. 
Take everything that you're experiencing, everything that hurts, all of your broken, crushed dreams and everything else that's happening to you, and now in this moment with wailing. I have talked with enough of you and cried with enough of you and heard from enough of you. You're being put through the ringer. As a church, we're not suffering stoically. Bring your wailing and your loud cries and your grief to God. Father, I ask that we would not hide anything from you right now. All that we are, all the expectations that have been crushed, all the dreams that have died, all the disappointment, even with ourselves, even with our fight against sin, am I still battling this? I thought I would be further along on the path of obedience. I thought that maybe by this time, I prayed enough that you would answer this. I I thought by now that you would save this person. I prayed so long, I thought by now this would happen. Oh God, help us in this moment to take all of these things and entrust them to you. Hear our hearts. We love you. We trust you. Help us that nothing would push us away from obeying you. Shame us away from following you. Though our flesh and our heart may fail, you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Don't let us be shamed away from having you forever as our greatest treasure. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.